One of the cautions I have stated repeatedly through the years, because I think it is so important, is the admonition to be careful about feeling like we have to resolve the tensions that exist in many profound areas of theology. What I mean is there are some areas of theology that seem contradictory to us, and we sometimes feel like we have to fix those apparent contradictions. For example, who hasn't wrestled with the issue of predestination and human volition? Both truths are presented in Scripture thoroughly and without apology. Because we aren't able to fully comprehend how they fit together, our tendency is to sacrifice one or the other to relieve the tension in our minds. As a result, we end up doing injustice to something that God feels is significant enough to talk about in His Word. So today, there are Christians who fight for divine sovereignty and they refuse to recognize the reality of human volition and responsibility. I don't know how you can read the Bible honestly and objectively without seeing human volition and responsibility. It's all over the place in Scripture. In fact, it may be spoken of more than divine sovereignty if you just do the math on the number of passages. On the other hand, there are some Christians who fight for free will, but they refuse to recognize the reality of divine sovereignty. They say that election is based on God's foresight, and God ends up choosing those who are going to choose Him. That destroys the true meaning of divine sovereignty and it doesn't line up with what Scripture really says. But this is what we see in the body of Christ today. We see Christians who feel like they have to be able to resolve the apparent contradiction, and the way they do that is by harming some very important truth in God's Word. Beloved, don't feel like you need to resolve the tension. Just let Scripture say what it says, and acknowledge that your mind is not infinite. There are some truths that you and I will not completely understand until eternity, but that doesn't give us the right to twist them or ignore them or misrepresent them or dismiss them. Be willing to hold both truths, even though you don't understand how they fit together, and don't take sides in the foolish fight that often results in these kinds of areas of theology. It's like two groups arguing over what emblem is on a quarter. One group says the emblem on a quarter is, a, is George Washington, while the other group says the emblem is an eagle. I've told the story in the past about two groups of Christians that were in a, in a room fighting over the issue of election and free will. The group fighting for election was saying that man has no choice it is God's choice, and man simply succumbs to that choice. The group fighting for free will was saying it is totally each individual's choice, and God really has nothing to do with it. He is just waiting to see what decision you will make. Well, this one poor guy in the room couldn't decide which group he should be in, but he finally decided that he would line up with the group fighting for election. So he walked over to their side of the room and someone from within the group asked him, why are you here? The guy responded, I just, just chose to come of my own free will. 
Well, as you might guess, they kicked him out of their group. So he walked across the room to the group that was fighting for free will. When he got there, someone asked him, why are you here? He responded, I had no choice. They sent me here. (laughs) Unfortunately, that's often how the body of Christ divides over this issue, but it's foolish. And it can be harmful to people in the body of Christ. The reason why this area of theology is impossible for us to comprehend completely is because it is an antinomy. The definition of antinomy in the shorter Oxford, Oxford Dictionary is, quote, a contradiction between conclusions which seem equally logical, reasonable, or necessary, end quote. In other words, two truths that seem incompatible when standing side by side. J.I. Packer expounds on the subject in his outstanding little book titled Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Let me quote from him. He says, An antinomy exists when a pair of principles stand side by side, seemingly irreconcilable, yet both undeniable. There are cogent reasons for believing each of them. Each rests on clear and solid evidence, but it is a mystery to you how they can be squared with each other. You see that each must be true on its own, but you do not see how they can both be true together. Let me give an example. Modern physics faces an antinomy in this sense in its study of light. There is cogent evidence to show that light consists of waves, and equally cogent evidence to show that it consists of particles. It is not apparent how light can be both waves and particles, but the evidence is there, and so neither view can be ruled out in favor of the other. Neither, however, can be reduced to the other or explained in terms of the other. The two seemingly incompatible positions must be held together, and both must be treated as true. Such a necessity scandalizes our tidy minds, no doubt, but there is no help for it if we are loyal to the facts. End quote. That last statement is key. If we are loyal to the facts. That statement is key in our approach to this issue and every issue addressed in Scripture. We must let the facts speak for themselves. We must let the Word say what it is saying. Now the reason I stress this is because I know of some Christians who believe in election, as I do, but they do not believe that the invitation statements in the Bible are just as true or just as real, or just as valid. When the Bible says, whosoever will may come, or whoever thirsts may come, they minimize or shy away from those statements, and they don't don't put as much stock in them or as much emphasis on them as they do the passages that talk about election and divine sovereignty. So we need to let the truth say what it is saying in everything it addresses, And that is very important as we come to our text this morning. Please turn with me in your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 3, over near the end of the New Testament. We are fast approaching our end of our trek through this powerful little letter. I invite you to follow along with me as I read verses 3 through 9, though our focus is going to be on verses 8 and 9 this morning. 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 3, knowing this first, 
that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Here in this third chapter of his second letter, the Apostle Peter is warning us about false teachers that will be prevalent in the last days. It's important to emphasize that Peter has in mind false teachers in Christianity. That is, false teachers under the umbrella of Christendom. He is not primarily talking about secularists. He has in mind teachers who are involved in seminaries and Bible colleges and churches and Christian institutions. They are religious people. They are religious, but their religion is not thoroughly biblical. It is a religion that is rational or reasonable to the mind of modern man. Therefore, if something in Scripture doesn't pass the test of what they consider to be intellectually reasonable, they will explain it away or twist it or say it's just an allegory. They think a thoroughly biblical Christianity is an embarrassment because it's offensive to an educated society. They think our message needs to be updated so that it doesn't come across as some kind of old-fashioned fundamentalist sermon. One specific doctrine that they feel is outdated is the doctrine of the second coming of Christ in cataclysmic judgment. They accuse those of us who hold on to that doctrine of being out of touch with reality and believing in a pie-in-the-sky kind of religion. They say the world ought to be far more concerned about a nuclear holocaust than a supposed second coming of Christ in catastrophic judgment. They say we ought to be far more concerned about global warming than a supposed second coming of Christ in catastrophic judgment. They say we ought to pay more attention to all the things we are doing to destroy our planet than a supposed second coming of Christ in catastrophic judgment. They say that uneducated Christians have for centuries preached a second coming, but it hasn't happened even though it has been proclaimed now for 2,000 years. Their attitude is often summarized in the following. Come on, get real. All that talk about a second coming and judgment is just a scare tactic to try to get people to convert. It's just a scare tactic to try to control people and manipulate people. That doesn't work in an enlightened and educated society. Their view is that a belief in the second, in the literal second coming of Christ in cataclysmic judgment is an old-fashioned, outdated, uneducated, unenlightened perspective of Christianity. 
Therefore, they say it is wrong to put so much emphasis and so much hope on a literal, bodily second coming of Christ to the earth to bring worldwide judgment. As a result, when they hear us talking about the second coming and preaching about the second coming and teaching about the second coming and eager to study the second coming, Peter says they scoff. Some scoff openly and some scoff inwardly, but the attitude is the same. They believe that brand, that flavor of Christianity, is a poor representation to the modern world of what Christianity really is. Their attitude is that we need to get in touch with the modern world. People don't want to hear about some pie-in-the-sky religion that leads to an escapism mentality. There are pressing problems in our world today, they say, and we have to change our message to meet the challenge. Our message has to address those issues. Don't point people to some supposed future escape called the second coming. Their argument against the doctrine of the second coming is known as uniformitarianism. The theory of uniformitarianism is the view that says that all natural phenomena have operated uniformly since the beginning of the earth. In other words, they may acknowledge that there was some kind of cataclysmic beginning to this universe, such as a Big Bang, but since that time, things have just unfolded slowly and gradually by never-varying patterns and principles of evolution. Everything in the universe is stable, closed, fixed, and governed by never-varying patterns and principles of evolution. Nothing catastrophic has ever happened in the past, so nothing catastrophic will ever happen in the future. There will be no divine invasion, no supernatural judgment on mankind. To counter that argument, Peter sets the record straight in verse 5. He says, For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water. A key statement in this verse is the phrase, For this they willfully forget. The ESV says, for they deliberately overlook this fact. The NIV says, but they deliberately forget. The NASB says, it escapes their notice. However, Peter isn't implying that it's something that is accidental. It escapes their notice because they don't want to hear it. They don't want to see it. They don't want to accept it. It's an ostrich mentality, sticking your head in a hole in the ground because you don't want to see it. This is willful unbelief. As an example of this, I think of Aldous Huxley, who was a widely read and famous atheist of the last century. Late in his life, he freely admitted that his dislike for the Scriptures and his derisive attacks upon the Christian faith stemmed from his desire to be free to sin. His objections were not philosophical or theological, for his underlying intent was to escape feelings of guilt. He wrote, and I quote, I had, now listen to this, this is an amazing admission by an unbeliever, a proclaimed atheist. He says, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Consequently, I assumed that it had not and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning for this world is not concerned exclusively with the problem of pure metaphysics. 
He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to. For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. End quote. Huxley admitted that he rejected biblical Christianity because he wanted to live any way he wanted to live without any accountability and any feelings of guilt. That was the driving force. Huxley was a proclaimed atheist, but atheists aren't the only people who reject biblical Christianity for the same reasons. Even some people who want to call themselves Christians pick and choose what they want to accept in Scripture. And that's the people Peter has in mind in this section of his letter. He is talking about religious people under the umbrella of Christianity who refuse to embrace the biblical doctrine of the second coming of Christ and profound judgment on mankind. And that is willful unbelief. The Apostle Paul describes this same kind of willful unbelief in Romans 1. Back up there for just a few minutes. Back up to the book of Romans after the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, then Romans chapter 1. Here in Romans chapter 1, Paul is explaining what prompts the wrath of God. What incites or brings forth the wrath of God. And notice what he says in verse 18. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, now here's a key phrase, who suppress, who hold down the truth in unrighteousness. This verse is saying God's wrath is stirred because men and women suppress the truth in or by their unrighteous living. The word suppress or hold down in this verse is a present participle which describes ongoing action. In other words, this isn't a one-time thing. Men and women continually suppress the truth. Rather than seeking God, the true God, the God of Scripture, and wanting to know the truth, men and women suppress the truth by holding on to their sin. And Paul says it's an ongoing thing. It's something they continually do. Lenski writes this and describes it this way, quote, Whenever the truth starts to exert itself and makes them feel uneasy in their moral nature, they hold it down, they suppress it. Some drown its voice by rushing on into their immoralities. Others strangle the disturbing voice by argument and by denial. Take the subject of hell as an example. Again and again we meet violent, passionate denials of its existence. But if a man is convinced that there is no hell, he ought merely to smile in a superior way when the subject is mentioned. Take God's wrath. Why all these assaults against it? Or the existence of God? Why do people fight it if no God exists? These denials and these arguments are not altruistic. They are efforts of the ungodly to suppress the disquieting truth in the interest of their own ungodliness. They face an inescapable alternative in their moral nature, an either-or. Either yield to the truth and give up ungodliness and unrighteousness, or to hold firmly to these two, and then of necessity 
to squelch the truth, end quote. You see, the point is this. Men and women suppress the truth, fight against the truth, so they can continue in their sin and try to do something about their feelings of guilt. Most people in our world, beloved, most people are not completely stupid and ignorant about what is true and right. The problem is that most people suppress the truth because they don't want to accept it and its implications. As an example, most thinking, educated people know that abortion is wrong because it is killing a conceived child. Most people who are pro-abortion know that. The problem isn't ignorance. The problem isn't stupidity. The problem is willful suppression of the truth. People suppress the truth so they can do whatever they want to do and to do it in an attempt to do it with a clear conscience. Another example is the one that Paul uses right here in Romans chapter 1, and that is the example of creation. Most people who have any intelligence at all know that nobody times nothing can't equal everything. It doesn't take a a high IQ to figure that out. But men willfully and purposely come up with evolutionary theories to try to explain away the facts they know to be true. And Paul says here in Romans 1, that's what incites God's wrath. That is what prompts God's wrath. God's wrath is kindled because men and women suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That pictures men and women sitting on the lid of a huge pot to keep the truth closed inside. Picture that in your mind. Truth thrown into a huge pot, slam a lid on it, and sit on it so the truth can't get out. God's wrath is kindled because men and women deliberately reject the truth with sheer determination. That is willful unbelief. Not ignorant unbelief. That is willful unbelief. And it's the very kind of thing Peter is describing in the lives of those who reject the doctrine of the second coming because of their belief in uniformitarianism. Now let's go back to our text in 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter refutes the foolishness of a uniformitarian view by illustrating how God has intervened in the past. God is not passive, and God has acted in monumental ways in the past. Thus, Peter's conclusion is, and rightly so, we have no reason to doubt what God has said in his word about his intention to step into this world again in the flaming second coming of his son in judgment. The reason why God hasn't done something worldwide like that since the flood is because he is preserving the present world and waiting until the time is right for the second coming of his son in judgment. So Peter says in verse 7 of 2 Peter 3, But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition or destruction of ungodly men. So this raises a question. If God is going to end this present world by the second coming of his son in judgment, if that's the way he's going to end human history, man's reign on planet earth, if you will, why hasn't he done it already? If this is God's plan, why hasn't he done it? Things are terrible on planet earth. Why? 
Peter gives two answers to that question. Answer number one, God's perspective of time is different than ours. That's verse 8. And number two, God's heart for the lost, for the unsaved, prompts him to wait. That's verse 9. Let's look at each of these individually. Verse 8, Peter says, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. This is Peter's first point of explanation as to why God hasn't already sent his Son in consuming judgment. God's perspective of time is different than ours. From our point of view, it seems like it has been a long time since the second coming was promised, but from God's point of view, it has only been a couple days since Jesus left the earth. That is why Revelation 1-3 can say, For the time is near, but the events of the book of Revelation haven't taken place yet. God doesn't measure time like we do. Those who fail to keep that in mind will do some strange things with the book of Revelation, such as trying to force an interpretation that says everything happened at A.D. 70 and in the first century. You don't need to do that kind of thing to the book of Revelation if you just realize that God's perspective of time is different than ours. Revelation 1.1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants things which must shortly take place. The Greek word translated shortly or quickly in Revelation 1.1 is used seven times in the book of Revelation. If you compare all the uses of, uses, uses of that word, as I have done, the emphasis seems to be on suddenness. In other words, Revelation 1.1 is saying that when the events of the book of Revelation begin to unfold, it will take place with suddenness. But the fact that they haven't taken place yet doesn't mean that God has spoken inaccurately or he has failed to keep his promise. God's perspective of time is different than ours. He doesn't measure time like we do. That's Peter's reminder here in verse 8. By the way, just as a side note, it would be twisting Peter's words here to try to use this verse as some kind of mathematical formula to do time calculations in the Bible. What I mean is there are some people who take these words and misread them by assuming that Peter says one day equals a thousand years and one thousand years equals a day, but that's not what the verse says. Peter clearly uses the adverb like or as in this verse. One day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. One thousand years does not equal one day in some kind of prophetic mathematical formula to help you figure out a hidden secret interpretation of the Bible. With our infinite God, who is eternal and outside of time, one thousand years is like a day. It's as a day. That is Peter's first point of explanation as to why God hasn't already sent his son in consuming judgment. Peter's second point is in verse 9. He says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, 
but is long-suffering toward us, or your translation, long-suffering toward you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Peter's second explanation as to why the Lord hasn't already returned in consuming judgment is because his heart for the lost, his heart for unsaved people, prompts him to wait. Peter begins this verse by reminding us that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. In other words, he's not late on his promise. This relates to what Peter just said in verse 8 about how the Lord reckons time, how he views or sees time. People who accuse the Lord of being late on his promise are using their own perspective of time and their own measurement of time. They are trying to force the Lord into their timetable. He is not late, Peter says. He is not late, but he sure is patient. He's not late, but he sure is long-suffering. And there's a reason why. Peter tells us at the end of this verse that the reason is because the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Do you know what that means? It means that the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's exactly what it means. Now, the reason why I emphasize that point is because so many commentators I read try to dance around what this verse says. And the reason why they feel the need to somehow dance around it is because they can't figure out how this verse coordinates with statements in the Bible about election. And they, they feel the need to somehow figure it out. So they make comments like this. This verse must be talking about the elect when it says the Lord doesn't want anyone to perish. I don't see the word elect in this verse. Do you? It's not in there. But I do see the words any and all. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2.4 says, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Ezekiel 18.32 says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God, therefore repent and live. John 3.17 says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. How do you reconcile all these kinds of statements with other passages about election and predestination? I don't know. I'm not responsible before God to be able to do that and figure that out. I am not God. My mind isn't infinite. If I could understand everything about the ways and workings of God, we'd all be in trouble. Shouldn't we expect that some things in God's Word and in His actions and in his activities, are beyond our complete comprehension? This is one of them. The Bible clearly teaches election and predestination, but it also clearly teaches that God is not willing that any should perish and that he desires all men to be saved and all to come to repentance. Beloved, listen. Don't detract from the character of God by denying what he says in his word about himself. Let me say that again. Don't detract from the character of God 
by denying what he says in his word about himself. He is not willing that any should perish. He desires all to come to repentance. He desires all men to be saved. Don't let your system of theology override these clear statements about God's character. This statement by Peter is a precious insight into the heart of our Lord. Precious insight. The Lord is patient, not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. This is why our Lord wept over Jerusalem near the end of his ministry. Luke 19, 41 and 42 tells us Jesus wept over the city because they had chosen to reject him and they had chosen judgment instead. You can hear our Lord's heart coming through in Matthew 23, 37, where he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus did not want Jerusalem to perish. He didn't want the people of Jerusalem to perish. He wanted the people to come to repentance. He was willing, but they weren't willing. He says, how often I wanted, I wished, I willed to gather your children together, but you weren't willing. I'm willing, you're not willing. That's always the way it is with those who face the judgment of God. If a person faces the judgment of God, it is because he or she has chosen to face the judgment of God. In Matthew 25, 41, Jesus clearly said, in no unmistakable terms, that hell was created for the devil and his angels. But people will end up there because they choose to go there. John 3.19 says, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Listen, if you die and stand before God in judgment someday, it will be because that is what you have chosen. If you are alive when Jesus comes back in flaming judgment and you are judged by him, it will be because that is what you have chosen. No one can rightly blame God for being judged. The Lord, this verse says, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, and he desires all men to be saved. If you refuse, listen, if you refuse, you will look back on this day, this very day, with unspeakable regret. regret because you have heard the truth and chosen to reject it. Let's bow together as we close this morning. Please bow your head and close your eyes so once again you're not distracted by any movement around you. And think about what you have seen in God's Word this morning, what you have heard in God's Word this morning. You and I have seen one of the great insights into the heart of our God. That the Lord is patient, 
not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is why Jesus wept over Jerusalem when the people would not repent. And the Lord's desire for you, if you're here today without Christ, if you're here today and you haven't repented, is that you not perish eternally. You need to repent. You need to repent. And you need to turn to Jesus Christ in childlike faith. As I said earlier, and I'll say it again, if you refuse and you stand before God someday in judgment, you will look back on this very day, this very moment, with unspeakable regret. Don't be one of those people. If you don't know Christ, if you are not right with God, if you have not repented, if you have not placed faith in Jesus Christ, don't refuse. Don't choose to reject. Don't choose to say no. Humble yourself before God and receive Jesus Christ by faith. Right now, this moment in the quietness of your heart where you are seated, just, just call out to the Lord in prayer and in your own heart saying, Lord, I want to be forgiven. I want to repent. I, I don't even know what all that means, but I want to repent and turn to you. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. I want you to cleanse me of my sin. I want your salvation. And you don't have to say it that way, but call out to the Lord for his forgiveness, his salvation, his new life. But don't leave here choosing to face the judgment of God. Father, as we close this morning, it's obvious that we close on a serious note because we're talking about people's eternal destiny. And we are so grateful, so thankful for Peter's statement here in 2 Peter 3, 9 for giving us this great insight into your heart that you, Lord, are not slow concerning your promise, but you are patient. You are long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Oh, what amazing patience you have, Lord, with people. How patient you are with this world to continue giving time day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, giving time for people to repent lest they perish. But we know the day is coming because your word is clear on this. The day is coming when they will perish if they have not repented. And that burdens our hearts for family members, friends, loved ones, people sitting around us who refuse you, who stiff-arm you, who reject you, your truth. We pray your Holy Spirit would do whatever it takes, whatever is necessary to get through, to bring that man, woman, young person, whoever it is, to repentance before they perish. And Father, for those of us who have been brought to repentance, we give you thanks from the bottom of our hearts, from the depth of our being, that you have broken through, you have opened our eyes, you have softened our hearts and brought us to repentance lest we perish. May we never ever take for granted this precious statement about your character. Not only here in 2 Peter 3, 9, 1 Timothy 2, 4, seeing the Lord Jesus weep over Jerusalem, all of these passages which give us a glimpse into your great heart. And may we treasure that, embrace that, 
believe that and revel in that truth about you. Father, take your word as we've been exposed to it this morning and minister minister it to our hearts and minds as you see fit. You know every one of us who is here. You know where we're at spiritually. You know everything about us. So we pray that you would take the truth of your word and accomplish your purposes in us as we pray together in the precious and matchless name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.